Peter was a pastor. The word means shepherd. And by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus recommissioned Peter. He told his defeated disciple, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, shepherd God's flock. And to that calling, Peter remained true for the rest of his life. In fact, that's what he's doing here in his two letters to the church. As shepherds do, he's feeding and he's warning the flock of God. First Peter dealt primarily with persecution. His second letter now deals with false teachers. The church was under attack from without and from within. And Peter doesn't want his followers to deny the Lord Jesus as he did. He wants us to build a strong faith and to be a faithful witness. And so he begins chapter 1, Simon Peter a bondservant, or literally, a love slave. You remember, by the Sea of Galilee, the resurrected Lord had asked Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Peter said, Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, here again, he says, Yes. He's a bondservant. He serves the Lord out of love, not just duty. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now realize, faith alone is no value. A person's faith is only as good as the object of that faith. You know, folks of all religions believe in their gods, but believing a thing doesn't make it so. A Christian's faith proves precious Because it's in the right standing with God that has been earned by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice Jesus is referred to as both God and Savior. Once I had a Muslim lady, she approached me after Bible study and she made the statement. She says, you know, I really enjoyed what you had to say about God, but I got confused when you mentioned Jesus. You talked about him as if he were God. And she was accurate in her perception, for Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate, or God in the flesh. The deity of Jesus is what sets him apart from all other religious leaders. Jesus was not simply a rabbi, or a prophet, or a holy man. It's not even enough to call Jesus the greatest man who ever lived. He was more than man. Jesus Christ was God and Savior. And then he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Notice that Jesus has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, he's the key that unlocks all things pertaining to a holy and happy life. You know, if life came with a treasure map, Jesus would be the X that marks the spot. Reminds me of Jeff Ferrara. He was reconciling his checkbook when he called the First National Bank of Chicago to check his balance. The electronic voice on the other end of the phone said, you have a balance of 924 million $844,204.32. What a surprise. 
Well, sadly, it was a computer glitch. It wasn't his to keep. Yet in Christ, we are spiritual billionaires. And it's no glitch, friends. It's grace. Your account gets credited with God's righteousness. This is what it means to be a Christian. We become entitled to all that Jesus has earned. And then he says in verse 4, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And you'll notice that precious, the word precious, is one of Peter's favorite words in referring to the things of God. In 1 Peter, he spoke of the precious blood of Christ. Then he calls Jesus the precious cornerstone. Here he speaks of our precious faith and now of God's precious promises. Understand the blessings of God were Peter's treasure. And then notice it's through these precious promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. You know, when you come to Christ, God implants His nature within you. His Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. That means that God's desires, His intents, His inclinations are uploaded, if you will, to our basic nature. The Holy Spirit installs a love for God and a love for others into our spiritual heart drive. The new nature enables us, Peter says, to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Society's selfishness, its violence is a direct result of man's lust. People are driven to evil by craving more and more. They hunger for more pleasure. They hunger for greater possessions. This is what fuels their sin. We escape the clutches of lustful living only when we're filled with the joy and the life of our Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 5, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now all of God's precious blessings are received by faith alone. But faith has to be fed. It has to be fortified for it to become strong. That's why we have to add to our faith those qualities that help it focus and keep it pure and enable it to grow. This is what Peter tells us. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're saved by faith alone, but faith needs to be nourished for it to grow strong. You know, like a bodybuilder. You know, to grow muscle, workouts are mandatory. you got to lift some weights. But you get more out of a workout by adding supplements. Protein. Not steroids. Protein. And this is true in our relationship with God. You see, it's all faith, but faith grows by adding seven spiritual supplements, Peter tells us. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And then verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, 
and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Don't forget. Don't forget that. Don't forget that you were cleansed from your old sins. I heard a great definition for the word nostalgia. It's the pleasure of sitting in front of a fire without remembering you had to cut the wood. In other words, we can get so used to a blessing that we forget it was gained at a great cost. Our faith in Jesus is a great gift. That's why we need to keep it strong. Add to your faith virtue and self-control and endurance and so forth. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. The more you add virtue and character to your faith, the less likely you'll stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Rather than stumble into the kingdom, wouldn't you prefer an abundant entrance? Of course you would. Add to your faith these things. Notice these words in verse 10. To make your calling and election sure. Think about that. That's a strange-sounding phrase. A calling implies that we did nothing to initiate the call. God calls, we answer. Election implies that we've, we're chosen, not that we choose. So how do we make certain something we had nothing to do with in the first place? And here is another example of the Bible's blending, its mysterious blending, if you will, of free will and predestination. God chose you, but you had to choose God. And you chose by faith. Therefore, to make your salvation sure, you need a strong faith. And you need to build up a faith by adding to it what supports it, virtue and knowledge and endurance and the like. And then verse 12, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Remember, Peter's a pastor, and a pastor's job is to remind you of truths that you already know. Don't get frustrated and walk out, well, I knew all that. That's my job. It's to remind you of what you already know. We live in fallen flesh and in the midst of a fallen world. Our tendency is to forget. In a temporal world, even eternal truths can get fuzzy. That's why when we come to church, we need the pastor to twist the lens and bring those spiritual truths back into focus. And then Peter writes in verse 13, Yes, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent. And notice he refers to his physical body as a tent in contrast to a house. Tent is temporary. Our earthly bodies are like a tent. You know, we're like a pop-up. We pop up for a time and then we're folded away. We're here today and gone tomorrow. That's the truth. And Peter says while he still has the opportunity, he considers it his obligation to remind the church of God's great truths. I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent. To stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Author Rosalind Aronson, she writes a beautiful piece. She entitles, Oh, Mr. Tentmaker. Here's a portion. 
It was nice living in this tent when it was strong and secure. But Mr. Tentmaker, it's scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak. And the canvas has a rip. It's scary in here. Mr. Tentmaker, why did you give me such a flimsy tent? The tentmaker replies, As the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you. I made a tent for myself once. It too was vulnerable, and attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. But you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. The experience now prepares me to live in your tent with you if you invite me. You'll learn as we dwell together that real security comes from me being in your tent with you. When storms come, I'll hold you. Someday your tent will collapse. It's only for temporary use. And when it does, you and I will leave together. I promise not to leave before you do. Our bodies are but a tent. We await the heavenly model. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And that's why it was so important for Peter to put his reminders down in ink and on parchment. Many Bible scholars believe Mark's gospel was also Peter's remembrances. Mark was Peter's disciple. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make up this gospel we preach. The gospels are not some ruse or hoax. Peter speaks for all the gospel writers in insisting that they simply reported what they saw and what they heard. He goes on to say, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What an occasion that was. On top of Mount Hermon, up in the northern Golan Heights, there Jesus was transfigured in all his glory. Peter saw his majesty. Up close, he saw the glory of God radiating from the Son of God. It was a moment Peter never forgot. And it wasn't just what he saw, it's what he heard. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. See, it wasn't just Peter. We heard three men, Peter, James, and John, all heard the heavenly voice. God himself audibly identified his son and testified of his sinless life. In Jesus, the Father is well pleased. You know, there are two great apologetical proofs for the claims of Christ. First are the eyewitness accounts. Remember, all the gospel writers suffered for the truths they recorded. You know, if they'd gotten rich off the story, we might have reason to doubt their motive, that they had some motive to lie. But it's hard to imagine men martyred for what they knew to be a deception. And the second great proof of his claims were the fulfilled prophecies. Over 300 Old Testament details were fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. Predictions relating to where and when and how and why the Messiah would come. They all amazingly came true in Jesus of Nazareth. And this is Peter's next point in verse 19. 
He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Prior to seeing Jesus one day, today we rest in his word. And he says of God's word, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You know, often I hear folks say, well, the Bible has a different meaning for everyone. Oh, you you interpret the Bible your way, and I'll interpret the Bible my way. You ever heard that? Of course you have. But that's not true. Peter here says that Scripture is not to be privately interpreted. It's of no private interpretation. That means it has an objective intent. It's not what you think it means or what I think it means. It's what God intended it to mean that matters. And that meaning applies to us all. For the Bible is universal truth. He says in verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here is the genius of the Bible. Human authors pen the message so that it comes across in a vernacular humans can understand. But those authors, those authors wrote only as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The end result is a book that relates to the human mind, but also reveals the mind of God. The book you hold in your hand is a special treasure, a precious treasure, Peter would say. The Bible is God's authoritative word. But there are people who dare to twist and to cloud God's word. Chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people. Even as there will be false teachers among you. who Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Even denying the Lord who bought them. And bring on themselves swift destruction. Holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit to bring us God's word. But there are also unholy men moved by unholy spirits like pride and lust and greed and fame and Satan who distort God's word. Beware of these false teachers and these destructive heresies. They twist to the the truth to the point of denying the Lord. Take the Mormons, for example. The Mormons support biblical morality. They promote family values. I'm sure they make nice neighbors. There's only one problem. They deny the uniqueness of Jesus and his atonement for our sins. And these are the most lethal type of false teachers. It's heresy wrapped in sweetness. It's a pretty poison. They deny the deity of Jesus and they're sending millions of people to hell. Sadly, verse 2 tells us, And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice, many will follow. How sad. Peter explains their lure in verse 3. He says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. You know, the false teachers, they're fueled by their own ego and greed. They twist the truth to appeal, to capture the largest audience possible. They'll tell you what you want to hear. Peter says, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. 
Judgment is inevitable for these spiritual deceivers. And in the next few verses, Peter gives three examples of how God will judge these wicked false teachers. First, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Here's the first example of God's judgment, the flood of Noah's day. Remember, this destruction was necessitated by an angelic apostasy or a falling away. Jude 6 describes it. Jude says, the angels did not keep their proper domain. Some Bible scholars believe that demons crossed the God-imposed boundary between the celestial and the terrestrial. In other words, they took human bodies and engaged sexually with the daughters of men. And this resulted in a perversion of the human race. Thus, the severity of God's judgment. He had to purify a polluted gene pool. He wiped out all of humanity but eight people. And according to Peter, God took these perverse demons and he chained them in the darkest part of hell. Here the Greek word translated hell is the word Tartarus. This is the only place in the New Testament where it's used. Apparently God created a very special holding cell for these vile demons who vexed and perverted humanity. Well, God was willing to judge. Another example of God's judgment took place Again in Genesis, he says, And God turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Sodom was notorious for its sexual perversions, for an aggressive homosexuality. But that was only part of the reason that God torched the city. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 It says this, look, this was the iniquity of Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. That's not always read when we talk about Sodom. See, it wasn't just sexual sin. It was a pride. It was a lack of charity for the poor that brought God's judgment down on Sodom. Hey, lest we get haughty. Lest we think that the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't apply to us. Hey, selfishness was also her sin. Well, God judged Sodom. But Peter reminds us of his mercy, God's mercy. He says he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. God judged, but he also extended mercy in the process. And Lot became righteous by faith. Lot knew God and he tried to follow God's ways. But his close associations in Sodom made him a miserable man. And here's the sad plight of many Christians today. They refuse to separate themselves from worldly influences. They end up oppressed and tormented. It was said of Lot, he had enough of the Lord... Not to be happy in the world. 
but enough of the world not to be happy in the Lord. Lot was the classic fence straddler. Recall what Jesus said, be hot or cold, not lukewarm. And then verse 9 tells us Sodom proved that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. See, Sodom teaches us that God knows how to judge the wicked and deliver the godly from temptation. Sodom had failed to come under the authority of God's word. Peter says they were presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Woe to self-willed people who don't respect the authority of God, who rename their sin an alternative lifestyle. Trust me, renaming your sin doesn't avoid God's judgment. Verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. And here Peter's referring to the story of Michael, the archangel, who fought with the devil over the body of Moses. It's Jude who tells us that he was respectful even in doing so. Apparently respect is a common trait among the angels. Peter's point is only sinful men buck God's authority. Only sinful men refuse to respect others. He says, but these, like natural brute beasts, in contract, contrast to respectful men, the pe- men that Peter's talking about are like brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. And here's our modern society in a nutshell. We speak evil of authority we don't understand. That, that's our modern world in a nutshell. We speak evil of authority we don't understand. We've tossed out male authority in the home and in the church. We don't understand God's bigger picture. We've defied God's plan for the sexes and his definition for gender. We scoff at God's authority over sexual relations. We don't understand. We mock God's authority over government. We turn a deaf ear to God's morality because we don't understand that God's will for us is for our own safety and for our own betterment. And negative consequences result if we disobey God. We don't understand these things. We're like brute beasts. We're running roughshod over matters that we don't understand. And these men who act like beasts will utterly perish in their own corruption, Peter says. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness, notice this, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. What an expression. To carouse in the daytime. These are people with no shame. You know, it's one thing to sin privately. It's one thing to sin in the dark, privately, covered, ashamed of what you're doing. It's another thing to sin openly and publicly with no squint of conscience. This was the sin of Sodom. In Sodom, it was gay pride day all the time. And Peter says of this consciencelessness, 
They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Sadly, his readers had accepted people with these false ideas as part of the Christian family. And they had created a blemish on the church's worship. Their Christianity had become a polluted brand. We don't want that to happen to us. And then verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These were the false teachers. They preyed on believers with a weak faith, unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. You know, the false prophet is a skilled manipulator. He plays on your emotions. He uses circular reasoning. He employs familiar phrases while redefining the terms. He uses all this kind of thing to take advantage of his listeners. He says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam, what an infamous character. Balaam was greedy. He was a soothsayer who went divining for dollars. Balaam was a prophet for hire. God warned him not to curse Israel, yet the Moabites bribed him with their riches. And we're told he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, raised the madness, restrained the madness of the prophet. In other words, God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. You remember that? Which is what he does here at Calvary Chapel every Sunday morning. God often speaks to us through strange methods, doesn't he? You know, Balaam reminds me of the CEO who offered his accountant $100,000 to doctor the books. Well, the accountant agreed. That's when the boss asked him if he'd do it for a penny. The accountant was upset. He said, of course not. What do you think I am, a thief? The boss replied, I've already established that. All that's undecided is your price. You know, it's been said every man has his price. I hope not. A false teacher sells out. It's the godly man who stays faithful. And then verse 17, these are wells without water. In other words, the false teacher utters promises that never materialize. Wells without water. He's like clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These spiritual deceivers are like clouds passing into oblivion. Here today, gone tomorrow. Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Understand this, the false teacher will always give you a religious justification for your lust. They'll give you an excuse. People get lured into the idea that they can please God and satisfy their flesh simultaneously. This is spirituality without morality. You have people all the time today who, who, oh, I want to be spiritual. They're seeking a spiritual experience, but they don't want to change their lifestyle. It's believing without behaving. That's a false experience. He says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is brought into bondage. 
They promise liberty, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. This is the pastor who gets up and condemns the evil of adultery. All the while, he's carrying on this little secret fling with a lady in the church. Or, or this is the pastor who rails on the plague of pornography, despite the secret life he's now living on the internet. He promises freedom, but he himself is trapped in a web. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. See, the saddest man is the person who was set free by Jesus only to revert back to the same bondage. Peter writes, The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Can you imagine? It would have been better not to have known than to have known it and turned back to your sin. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Imagine a prisoner set free, yet because of his own laziness, he returns to the jailhouse because life is easier there. At least in jail, I get a bed, I get three hot meals. Imagine that. Jesus sets us free from sin. But some Christians are too lazy to add to their faith the spiritual supplements like virtue and self-control and endurance. And they fall right back into the same sin from which they were delivered. It's tragic. I've met Christians who sob over the spiritual prison they occupy. But if the truth were known, they're not free because they don't want to be. At least not enough to do what it takes to add to their faith. Like a hog, Peter says. Some people are content with the spiritual slop. And then chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. In both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and and Savior. You've heard repetition is the best teacher. Peter and his mentor Jesus often repeated lessons and that's what Peter is saying he's doing here. And then he reminds them, knowing for this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ah, you Christians, always talk about the rapture. You're always talking about the end of the world. Jesus is coming back soon. Well, where is he? I don't see him anywhere. This is what they say. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing ever changes. And actually, this is a modern theory that goes by a long name, uniformitarianism. It was first espoused by Charles Lyell, a geologist in the 1800s. It's actually the foundation for Darwinian evolution. 
And it's interesting, Peter predicted it 1,950 years ago. So uniformitarianism is the belief that the earth has been shaped through history by the same natural laws at work in the world today. A uniformitarian will stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. He'll look down those five miles to the valley below to that little blue thread called the Colorado River running down through that valley, and he'll claim that it was that slender river that cut out that giant canyon. Oh, given enough time, anything's possible. A uniformitarian asserts that the Grand Canyon formed the same way that the gullies in your yard form, through simple erosion. I'm sorry, friends, I'm not that gullyable. And neither was Peter. Notice verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. The historical truth omitted by most modern scientists is the global flood of Noah's day. And a catastrophic worldwide deluge, as the Bible describes, is a far better explanation for the earth's geology than natural processes over millions of years. For one thing, fossils don't form over time. You know, a bird falls to the ground and dies. It either decomposes or scavengers come and eat it up. But the fossil of that bird forms when intense pressure follows the bird's immediate compaction. The type of scenario caused by a flood. Fossils were caused by Noah's flood. Understand the biblical flood isn't ignored because of a lack of scientific credence. Peter says it's willfully forgotten. And and here's why. Arrogant men can't admit to a global flood. If they do, they validate God's judgment. They've chosen instead to deny God and pretend to be their own authority. He says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Notice this. You admit God judged the earth in the past. And you are conceding that he can do it again. And this scares wicked men. They would rather stick their head in the sand and live in denial. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. So it's been two thousand years since Jesus promised he'd return. With God... Time is relative. Up against eternity, a thousand years is as a day. From God's perspective, we haven't been waiting long. Peter assures us, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is no slacker. God is not in the habit of putting off his obligations. He delays Jesus' coming out of his love for people, his desire for people to repent. 
And then verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And some read verse 10 and they imagine a missile, perhaps the detonation of a nuclear warhead. But I believe when the time comes to retire this physical universe, it will occur by direct act of the hand of God. Hebrews 1 verse 13 tells us that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. This is one of the great mysteries of physics. What is the atomic glue that binds the positive charges? You know, like charges are supposed to repel. But in the nucleus of every single atom, those protons hold together. What is this atomic glue? The Bible says it's Jesus. And one day, all he has to do is let go. And the whole universe will incinerate. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Certainly not a materialistic person. I would hope not. Why live for stuff that's going to eventually burn up? Instead, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We should live looking for Jesus. This is how we should live. Notice Peter even says that we can hasten the Lord's return. What a provocative thought, that you can speed up Jesus' return. How is that, Pastor Sandy? Well, Romans 11 verse 25 tells us that the end time events won't begin until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Implied there is that there must be a set number, a set number to be saved. Apparently, when that number's reached, the Father will turn to the Son and say, go get them. That means every person we lead to Jesus, we're one person closer to his return. Thus, the more we share our faith, the more we can speed up or hasten the Lord's return. And then verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The world we live in today still bears the curse of sin. It remains subject to randomness and decay. But one day, this universe will melt with fervent heat And God will form a new heaven and a new earth. An awful end will lead to a glorious beginning. He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Did you hear that? The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Think about this. If Jesus returned today, someone you love would be left behind. If he came back today, someone you love would be left behind. We can wait a little longer for a few more souls to be saved. And then Peter continues, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Peter says, Paul agrees 
with his conclusions. And we noticed quite a few similarities between Peter and Paul. They were probably in prison at the same time together as they wrote these letters. As also in all his epistles, Paul's epistles, Peter's commenting on Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, if you've ever read Romans chapters 9 through 11, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or perhaps 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you too may have concluded that Paul is difficult to understand. Don't worry, you're in good company. Peter thought the same thing about Paul. He said, boy, Paul can get pretty complicated at times. But but notice the important thing here. Peter equates Paul's writings to the rest of the Scripture. In other words, he believed that Paul's writings were inspired. He says, as they do also in the rest of the Scriptures. In other words, he equated Paul's writings with Scripture, and this is important. Peter had no doubt that Paul's letters should be included in the sacred canon of God's Word. And then verse 17 He really finishes where he began. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. He closes with the repeating of his theme here. Here's how we mature in Christ. We guard and we grow. We guard against error and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer for you. That you'll guard against those who seek to twist the truth and deceive you for their own gain. But then at the same time you add to your faith those things that will cause it to grow and be strong. Virtue and endurance and love and brotherly kindness. And so, Father, we thank you so much for Peter's letter to the church and how we need it today, how relevant it is for our own time and for our own experience. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for its truths. And Lord, we pray that we could grasp your word more and more as the days go by and we could live according to your word. And we're amazed, Lord, that By how we live, we can even hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus. Father, there's people that we love. There's people that you love more who need to know you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to care and to find a way to build relationships and to communicate truth and lead others to the same saving knowledge of Christ that we've discovered. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings, the precious blessings that are ours in Christ. Lord, continue to work in us and through us in the days ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.